Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Beer and Biceps podcast and today I will be looking at my 7 worst mistakes as a personal trainer. Uh, now saying that, these will not be business mistakes, you know like turning up late to clients or not charging enough. These are specifically going to be about um, diet and programming mistakes. Um, also another thing I'd like to point out um, all of these mistakes I did make, but that doesn't mean that by my the end of my time as a personal trainer I was still making them. Most of these mistakes would have been as a uh, brand new PT. Um, this is my roundabout way of saying I'm not as shit as I'm about to sound. <laughs> um, but anyway, these are just seven, and to be honest, um, I wrote down the title was going to be seven worst mistakes. Um, and then after writing a bunch down, I, look, I looked down, I realised I was on about 15, so <laughs> I've cut it down to seven. Um, but there, there were plenty. It, it's a really difficult job, actually. Um, and I think w one of the problems with PTs is uh, you, you come out of uh, your qualifications, and, and I was as qualified as you can really get. I had degree in sports science, a BTEC in sports science, which BTECs get the piss ripped out of them, but, you know... It's, Two years of continual studying. Um, I, you know, I had had an A level in PE. Did my sports science degree. Got a, a boxer size personal training qualification. Got a regular personal training qualification. I did everything I could, but still, on day one, you know, I I was a twenty four year old, twenty three year old, something like that. You know, I, I didn't really know too much about what I was doing. Um, but you're expected to be an expert. And personal trainers walk around calling themselves master trainers or expert trainers when they've only been in the job a year. And it's it's a crazy, crazy way to be. I, I don't know any other profession where you have to be that confident that quickly. Well, I guess probably loads of them. Maybe I've just realised how difficult life really is. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, most personal trainers don't last longer than a year, so the, the actual standards can be quite low, but it's not the fault of personal trainers, it's just a very difficult industry to, to stay in, and you need to know a hell of a lot, and most PTs don't, I didn't, and I had every opportunity to do so. Uh, that being said, um, I got better, I am better, and yeah, let's learn from my mistakes. Okay, so the first mistake I made as a personal trainer, well, not chronologically my first, but one of the first on this list was avoiding uh, resistance machines for too long. Um, I don't know how this happened, but I somehow got it into my head. In fact, I do know how it happened. It's other personal trainers getting into my head. But I got it into my head that um, a personal trainer should not be using resistance machines lat pull-downs, chest press, shoulder press, you know, seated shoulder press, leg press, leg extensions, leg curl machines, all that sort of stuff. I was told by you know, loads of people, especially, this would be like, you know, 2010 to 2013 sort of time, but there was a lot of stuff going on that, you know, as a personal trainer, you shouldn't be touching any of those machines, they're bad for people. Of course, that's complete rubbish, um... Resistance machines have loads of benefits, particularly for people who are just starting out in training, who don't have great coordination, don't know exactly what they're doing, and you know um, aren't mobile enough to do normal exercises. And you know what? When you're a personal trainer, that describes 90% of your new clients. So here's me going, right, I want to work the hamstrings, better teach them how to do a, you know, 
dumbbell Romanian deadlift when I could have just stuck them on a uh, a leg curl machine, and it's it's just kind of a crazy sort of way that I sort of acted like I was too good for these machines. Um, don't get me wrong, like once you're trained enough, a bench press is much better exercise than a seated chest press, but for most of your regular clients, it doesn't make any difference. If if you're if you're training once or twice a week, you know, with the goal of losing a bit of fat, it doesn't make much difference if you use a chest press or if you use a bench press. But at least with a chest press, you can do it on your own without fear of crushing yourself. And if it's free, use it. I, that was another thing. When you're a PT, a lot of your hours are during peak hours in the gym. So, you know, I was waiting with my clients for four to five minutes to wait for a bench press or working in with a group of nine other blokes when I could have just stuck them on a chest press. And it was wasting everyone's time by me going, right, I need to do it this way or, or I need to do a bodyweight exercise. I can't be seen to be a personal trainer using a chest press. But it's stupid. And I got much more comfortable using it. And then arguably used it too much for a bit but you know I found a happy medium which is you know with new brand new clients use them you know without worrying about what people think they're good machines um then try and you know once they've got the coordination once they've got the mobility once they've got that basic level of strength that a lot of people don't have you can progress them on to you know regular bench press or if you think they're ready you can start them from day one but this whole thing ties up to my worrying about what other people thought about me and I think that affects a lot of personal trainers because we're a gossipy bunch <laughs> you just see three other trainers sitting at a desk looking at you going what the hell's this guy's doing so yeah anyway so number one avoiding resistance machines for too long was my was a big mistake I made and I'm very glad that I learned from it uh, number two um, I've just written GVT which stands for German Volume Training I used I didn't use this a lot, but I did use it with a bunch of my clients. Um, what German volume training is is the most insane volume workout you've ever seen. So you'd pick an exercise, say bench press, and you would do ten sets of ten on the bench press. You know, use about sixty percent of your one rep max, maybe lower than that. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, and yeah, it just. Again, like the first one, it kind of stems from a bigger problem, which was I was treating my clients like athletes rather than treating them like regular people who wanted to get in shape. So I first started using this with um, fellow Beer and Biceps uh, podcaster Todd, actually. It's a shame he can't be here to do this, but as I'm, this may be coming out in January, but I'm recording it in December and uh, I'm in a tier three lockdown area, so the chances of him coming up here and doing it were impossible anyway I got him to do this um, German volume training thing combined with a, a decent diet plan and yeah we did it 12 weeks and he made incredible you know he had incredible results but uh, he also I trained him too hard uh, you know definite signs of overtraining all that sort of stuff it was it was the sort of thing you'd do to your best mate because you know you don't have to treat them like humans, but it, <laughs> and he was getting it for free, and and I was quite new to the whole thing. It was probably the best results I ever got, but it wasn't the German volume training, and it was just an insane way of doing it. It was way too much, way too many exercises, way too much volume, um, and the benefits weren't really there. Like it 
German volume training, I can't remember specifically what the benefits are supposed to be, but fat loss and building muscle isn't quite what it's supposed to be. I think you get better endurance and all that sort of stuff. I don't To this day, I can't remember what it was. Um, but yeah, this could be um, covering for training my clients too hard. Um, and this is also going to come up in the next point. So number three is um, high-intensity interval training slash Tabata. Uh, Tabata is a form of um, hit, so it kind of ties together. Um, but I put them separately because um, I used high-intensity interval training with too many clients um, because it's just a type of training that is way too advanced for most people. And whilst many of my clients were very fit, not all of them were fit enough to do it right. Um, so they were they were still they were fit enough to survive. Um, but like to get the most out of high intensity interval training, you need to be properly fit, and some of them weren't. I didn't, I didn't realize this at the time. So um, it's not like I was doing it to be a dick. Um, but I, you know, I thought, well, they're doing it and they're doing it well. So you know that they're, they're getting good results from it. But really, you need to be fit enough to work at a hundred percent intensity for twenty seconds and rest for ten seconds or whatever the protocols are. Um, and a lot of them would be working at, you know, 100%, 70%, 50%, 30%, because they, they weren't able to keep it up for the whole thing. And also, in an hour session, that's way too much uh, high-intensity interval training anyway. So I know that now. Um, Tabata is a form of high-intensity interval training. So it's where you you work for 20 seconds and you rest for 10 seconds and you do it for a set of eight so it lasts four minutes in total. And you're supposed to do that with, um, ideally with compound movements, but a lot of them need to be body weight. Um, but I was using it for loads of stuff. Um, chest press machine. Um, what else? Uh, goblet squats. Um, just loads of exercises, lap pull down. And, and it, it, was based around a misunderstanding that I had of how the training's supposed to work. Um, but it, again, it was just, it was too difficult on the clients and it was kind of nonsensical. Um, I, I, they, they still got good results out, um, out of training with me, but I think that the whole high intensity interval training and the Tabata sort of thing was just a stupid, a stupid mistake on my part, really. I, I should have just stuck with, the more boring but the more effective type of training which I'd been doing beforehand and which I reverted to afterwards. I'd, I'd, but a good out of a seven-year career, I think I spent about a six-month period just giving this to all my clients. I thought it was brilliant, but um, I soon learned that, well, six months later, I realised that it wasn't, and I'm glad to say I stopped using it. There were, there were some clients that it would still work with, but um, there were better better things out there and again it goes back to the fact that these clients were not athletes they were regular people trying to get fit okay so number four was plyometrics um i knew a lot about plyometrics from doing studying it at university but i knew a lot of how to teach it so i was i was, I was qualified to co uh, to coach it as more than more than most people but i had clearly misunderstood the part where they said again this is not for regular people this is for athletes and this is something by the way that loads of uh, personal trainers get wrong it's not just me um also i'm gonna have a bit of beer 
Ugh. Yeah, so plyometrics is um, well, it's basically called jump training. Um, if you've ever seen somebody doing box jumps, where you jump onto a box and well, what you're supposed to do is stop and then climb off slowly, but people jump on and then jump off again. Or if you see people hopping or um, bounding or leaping or throwing a ball at a wall or stuff like that, all of those are explosive movements which are called plyometrics. And they are absolutely fantastic for um, athletes. So a lot of the exercises are designed to increase power. Um, so uh, particularly, I mean, imagine for a sport like basketball where you're jumping a lot and throwing balls and, you know, catching and then landing and then, you know, turning. Uh, because another another part of plyometrics is agility training and um, turn of pace, uh, all that sort of stuff, turning at pace and all that sort of stuff. And uh, so, yeah, it's fantastic for athletes because it's really good at conditioning them for training. So it's used all the time. But what are the benefits for regular people? Um it's not great for building muscle because you know it's it's uh it's not the ty- the type of um it's not what you're training for it's not great for fat loss um unless you do it wrong which is the mistake that loads of people and myself made so um if you if you perform plyometrics at high enough intensity and as part of circuits and stuff like that you can burn a lot of calories making it quite good for fat loss but actually you shouldn't do that because it's dangerous plyometrics is doesn't sound it because a lot of it's body weight but it's actually incredibly tough on your joints um, and it can create a lot of injuries partly those injuries would be from too much uh, pressure being put on your joints but also with stuff like box jumping um, it can just be from slipping or not jumping high enough I, I knew a guy we used to have um it was like a metal step that you could do box jumps onto. So it was like, it was attached to a large piece of um, gym equipment, which was for like pull-ups and climbing. And it was an amazing piece of kit, but it also had this metal step, which you could use for jumping onto. And he put it up way too high and jumped and sort of like went shin first into the edge of it and just cut, cut up his entire shin. It was like a gash that was like an inch thick. It was disgusting. Uh, but, uh, that, that's the sort of thing that can happen a lot. Um, and it's just the, the whole pr- uh, plyometrics is not designed to be like that at all. You're supposed to... Um... So with a box jump, what you're supposed to do is jump up, land quietly. If you land heavily, then either you uh, the, the box is too high or you're too tired to do it. You want to land like a cat on it so there's no noise. Um, then you stop, you quietly climb off, you rest, and then you do it again. So it's not something that you jump on, jump off, jump on, jump off as fast as you can. It's like um, quality over quantity. That's the point. Um, But trainers don't treat it like that. They treat it like just another form of exercise. Um, I think the guy who invented plyometrics said that you should be able to body lift twice your own... uh, You should be able to squat twice your own body weight before you get into plyometrics. That's the level of fit you want to be at. I think that's probably a little bit too much, like... You know, if you're 75 kilograms and you can squat 140 rather than 150, I'm sure you'd be fine. But that's just to give you a rough idea of how intense this is. And it is specifically designed for increasing power and improving your sports performance. So unless your clients are want that, then you've got no business teaching them it. And yeah, I wasted too much time on that. Uh, number five, 
uh, I did too much boxing. Uh, I, I, if you remember from the beginning of this conversation, I said my, I, I was first qualified as a boxing personal trainer or a boxer size personal trainer before I was a personal trainer. So I did a, a course with um, an ex-boxer called Andy Wake, who's gone, who's done boxer size, which is teaching personal trainers and fitness instructors how to teach boxing. Because if you've ever been into a gym and you've seen a personal trainer teaching their client boxing, 90% of them haven't done the course and 90% of them look like dicks doing it. They don't know what they're doing. Their clients don't know what they're doing. Nobody knows what they're doing. They look stupid. If you know how to throw a punch and you know how to teach someone how to throw a punch, it's embarrassing watching it, to be honest. it's Anyway, that's a whole other subject. But in fact, I've already talked about this in another a previous podcast. But anyway, I, I used it too much because... Boxing is good for conditioning, like it's great uh, cardiovascular workout, but I feel that it took too long to teach. Like, say somebody sign up for twelve sessions, I wouldn't, I would not feel that they were ready to do it properly for about six or seven sessions. You know, and when you're learning something and you know you're going your technique perfect, it's not half as you're not burning half as many calories as you should have. Like, if I just taught them how to run on a treadmill, they'd have burnt more calories. So I think a lot of pers- a lot of my clients specifically chose me for boxing. I don't regret teaching them boxing at all. It was m- so fun to do, and they had a great time doing it. But I tried to teach too many clients who didn't specifically want that. What they wanted was to lose weight, and I should, shouldn't have even just given them the option. I should have just trained them properly and got them results. I don't think that's like... um. A massive mistake it was more just a uh, it was a choice I made and maybe I shouldn't have made it for everyone but it was it's not like anyone was like wasted their money doing it or you know was getting massively injured or anything well let's say that none of my I don't think I had clients that really got injured in a session with me ever other than uh, you know um, Maybe falling over or something, I don't know. I can't remember, to be fair. Maybe, I, maybe I've got a ton of lawsuits coming to me, who knows. <laughs> right, number six, uh, one rep max testing. Um, some trainers say that you should never, ever do a one rep max testing with your clients. I think those trainers are wrong and being overly cautious. However... Um, the way I did one rep max testing was kind of stupid, especially, uh, especially in my first two, three years. So finding out your one rep max is very useful, um, for certain things. So if you're, if you're good enough at like, you know, I'd, I'd had clients for years and, you know, some of them were, re- were getting really good at lifting weights. And one of the things you want to be able to do is, um, lift is to structure your lifting so that you're actually lifting weights that are percentage of the heaviest weight you can lift so um if you're training for hypertrophy they say you want to be training at 60 percent of your one rep max for 15 reps well to, to to know what that weight is you'd need to know what your one rep max was so you know finding out your one rep max on the bench press um is useful for that so if you know that your one rep max is 100 kilograms you then know to lower it to 60 kilograms to do your 12 reps for a set. That's the, that's not the theory. That's what it is. Um, that's why I did it. And also it's quite good from a psychological point of view. Like 
people want to know what their the heaviest bench press they can do is, the heaviest deadlift they can do, and the heaviest squat they can do. And I'd rather them do that with me as a trainer who can, one, make sure they're doing it right, two, make sure they're doing it safely, and three, make sure they're not cheating, um, and make sure they're getting enough rest. Uh, so th- there are benefits to doing it, and so, uh, um, I, I stand by the fact that I got some trainer, uh, some clients to do it. I My mistake, I'd say, was doing too much one rep max testing in a session. So I do like bench press, squat and deadlift. That's too much. Like you're not going to get your best results from that because you'll be knackered from the first one. Although it is difficult to do an hour's session with even one set, uh, one, one rep max because it'll only last about 10, 15 minutes. Then you've got 45 minutes to kill and they're shagged for the rest of the workout at least with the squat and the bench press they're opposite but anyway yeah doing three in three in a session was a bit crazy um, and also there were some clients who just didn't need it like um a few of my female clients they didn't need to know the percentages because their goals were purely fat loss and they didn't care either so it's not like they were going to be walking around telling everyone oh you know i can bench this i think that me personally, I enjoyed talking about my my female clients' bench press more than they did because I was bloody impressed. Like, I think I had two female no, two female female clients who managed at least seventy kilogram bench presses, and one of them who did eighty. So you know, I was really proud of that. But they didn't they didn't care. They didn't need to know that, and it was a bit of a waste of a session. So yeah, I think if I was to get back into training, I wouldn't bother with majority of the clients that I did it with they just didn't need it but it's not a massive mistake um right my seventh one and the final one on this list um I was not bold enough with diet um so I'm not a nutritionist and I'm not a dietitian so I have no business giving out prescribed dietary advice like if you say I have an eating disorder could you help me with my diet I legally cannot say yes. (laughs) So that I was very clear with. Um, But what you can do is give advice to people who don't have eating disorders or who don't have illnesses. And so long as you're not telling them, you know, this will cure cancer or, you know, bullshit like that, you will be all right. You're perfectly legally allowed to do it. Also, um, while I didn't have those qualifications, um, I did have a degree in sports science and several of those modules were nutrition based. Um, so that's at least a year's worth of university level education in nutrition. I was should I would have been absolutely fine to teach them more than I was doing, but I was hesitant to. I was just scared, really. I didn't give people um, uh, tough enough deficits, um, and also I. The reason so like you don't want to give someone too big a deficit because it couldn't you know affect their health but the problem is most people um, wildly underestimate how much they're eating anyway so if somebody's supposed to be eating 2,000 um, calories per day and you put them into a 200 calorie deficit at 1,800 they could well still be eating 19 or even 2,000 calories without realizing it because they forgot to add you know the oil they cook their food in or you know their, their portion sizing isn't correct so I was giving them 200 calorie deficits and they weren't seeing results quick enough or they weren't seeing results at all because really they weren't actually hitting that target. But if I'd been 
bolder, I could have given them a 400 calorie deficit, and then they probably would have been hitting 200. Um, I've I've seen PTs that I really respect, and recently, and uh, you know, one of them, Gordon Greenhorn, I think that's his name. Or maybe not. If it's not, that's embarrassing how far I've got that wrong. Uh, but he put up something about that he'd once had a client, a female client, on a 500 calorie day. Now this guy is seriously good at his job, and it's you know there's not a single person who's going, oh you know you monster. His his argument was that it was it was basically sort of like a five two diet sort of thing. Like they they were on a low calorie deficit anyway, but he'd have like two days of super low calories, so that they could have slightly more calories at the weekend or something like that so you know, but i was like way too scared of being called out by somebody so i didn't ever go close to that like i think i had a client you know who we were dieting down for a wedding and um you know she did fantastic she did great but i could definitely have pushed it more because i had a client who was properly listening to me was disciplined was doing it properly but i was i wasn't being bold enough with my what I was prescribing so I could have you know I could have been a better trainer to her really because of that so again I don't regret you know a lot of the things I did and I don't think that you know caring too much about your client's health is that bad a personality trait but I think I could have got better results from it so that you know that this is my seven worst mistakes as a PT so you know talking through all seven of them makes me sound awful but you know Talking about my seven greatest successes would have made me sound like a dick, so I didn't want to do that, and I thought I'd, you know, I'd be real with you guys about it. Anyway, now that I've depressed myself, um, let's talk about the beer I'm drinking. So, um, my missus came back from the co-op because we're northern now. Um, with uh, it was like a, she spent five pounds and she got um, a glass and two beers of. Um, Shelby India Pale Ale, which is the official Peaky Blinders beer that's brewed by Thornbridge. I love Thornbridge, and I'm fairly indifferent about Peaky Blinders. I watched one episode. It seems all right, but very strongly based in Birmingham, which obviously I'm going to have problems with. <laughs> um, actually saying that, I love Birmingham when I went there, although my mate did get his motorbike nicked, so you know uh, they're not completely wrong about it. Um, the beer is really good, and I absolutely am loving this glass. Um, yeah, so it's an IPA, and but not a particularly strong tasting one, um, which I'm fine with. I, I'm trying to work out. It's an English beer, like Formbridge Brewery is Derbyshire based, um, and I'm trying to work out if this is an English IPA or an American style IPA, because it's nowhere near as strong as most American IPAs. But then again. It's, I don't, yeah, I think maybe it's an English IPA. So that would explain why it's not as um, hoppy, not as bitter, not as fruity. Um, and it also explains why I like it, because I like English IPAs. Um, yeah, and you know, I really love the glass. It's the type of, um, well, if you're looking at the podcast, you can probably see the photo of it, because I'm going to put it up. But um, it's the type of glass they use for um, it, for Czech beers, like Pilsner Urkel, um, what's the other one? Um, Kozel, um, Budvar, you know, all those sort of Czech beers, and they come in these sort of like little mugs. And I absolutely love them. I've been trying to get them for ages, um, but they're not, can't find them anywhere. Um, 
like Amazon's useless for it. But um, yeah, the missus comes back. It's only a half pint glass. It's it's absolutely titchy, but yeah, I'm really enjoying it. And the reason that I like these glasses is um, it's actually part of it's just practical. So for like beers like this, you want it nice and cold. Um, and if you are have got like a traditional pint glass, what you're going to do? You're going to hold it in your bare hands. And what does that do? It warms up the beer. So, you know, you end up with uh, a room temperature beer a lot quicker, whereas beers with handles, you're holding on to the handle. It's not affecting the beer at all. The beer stays colder for longer. It's a very practical design. Um, And English pubs used to have those sort of um, beer mugs all the time. But then we went into glasses and we'd never looked back. But actually, it's just a completely silly way of holding it, really. So, yeah, I'm very happy with my mug. Very happy with my beer. Very happy with my missus. Alright, I will be back next week with another episode. Have a good one.